Word. As I mentioned, we're entering a new series today called The Journey to Jerusalem, focused on Easter Sunday coming up in just a couple of weeks. Uh, I also want to mention that uh, on our sermon outline on the back, I've uh, asked Larry Bailey, and he's graciously uh, said he would continue to write some of these companion articles, and I highly commend these to you. They're really informative, and often they look at the passage from maybe a little bit different aspect than I might look at it from, and so I encourage you to, if you didn't pick one of those up coming in, pick it up on the way out today and read Larry's companion article. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. Well, it seems that in the mid-1800s, working as a sailor in Great Britain was a very dangerous job. Shady ship owners tried to maximize profits by overloading their ships. And then these ships often sank in bad, bad weather, and that allowed the ship owners to make even more money because they just collected on the insurance. And so in a few period, years period, hundreds of ships sank and thousands of sailors perished. Overloading and poor repair made some ships so dangerous that they became known as coffin ships. Sailors began to refuse to board these coffin ships. And as a result, they were often imprisoned for desertion. Between the year 1870 and 72 alone, more than 1,600 sailors were thrown in jail for this crime. Well, about that time, a young British politician, a man by the name of Samuel Plimsoll, who was a believer, began to apply his biblical faith to this current unjust system. Plimsoll announced that he would do all in his power to put an end to the unseaworthy ships that were owned by greedy and unscrupulous owners. As a member of the House of Commons, he tried to have laws passed, but the ship-owning politicians and their ship-owning owner cronies rejected law after law. And then a massive storm wreaked havoc. 23 ships sunk in just that storm. 70 sailors and six rescuers perished. Onlookers stood clustered on the shores looking out in despair as vessel, vessel after vessel foundered. Well, now that the public's new attention on that unjust system of ship overloading was awakened, Plimsoll fought to promote the cause at an even greater level. He displayed the grieving widows of sailors that had perished. He wrote a book and distributed it at no cost, over 700,000 copies to expose the vile practices of the ship owners. And finally, under his leadership, the British Parliament passed the 1875 Merchant Shipping Act, which marked the beginning of the end for the coffin ships. From then on and to this day, the vessels that go out into the sea have to display what's called the Plimsoll Mark. If you've ever been to the harbor, if you've ever been on a big ship, whether it's a cruise ship or a cargo ship, you'll see these similar marks a load line painted clearly on the holes showing how <clears throat> deep they can safely sit in the water and to prevent overloading of the ships. 
That's a practice that came about because one man saw an injustice, stood up and said, this is not right. And that new practice saved thousands of lives of sailors who had been caught up in an unjust system. You see, when a, when a system becomes so dysfunctional that there's a likelihood that people are going to be thrown in jail unjustly or die needlessly, then some kind of protest was in order. And Mr. Plimsoll saw that. Well, today, we're going to talk about another injustice. The temple of God had become so dysfunctional that the people were no longer able to seek God properly. And some kind of protest was in order. And so it was Jesus that took it upon himself to become the protester. Today we're going to look at some of Jesus' hard words as he addresses dysfunction in the temple in Jerusalem. And we're also going to look at some of his hard actions. But before we do this, let me just take a few minutes, a moments to just set up the context. Jesus has come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as he has done so, the people have lined the streets and they've laid down palm branches and they have shouted, Hosanna, which means God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. We're going to talk more about that next Sunday on the Sunday that we traditionally call Palm Sunday. But then, later that day, actually that evening, Jesus takes a visit to the temple, into the courtyard surrounding the temple. But it's, it's late in the day, so he doesn't stay very long. And then he returns to Bethany, which is about two miles away, to spend the night with some of his disciples. And now we're going to take a look at our text as Jesus demonstrates through two action parables that he came to bring true justice by restoring us to right relationship with God and with one another. So let's take a look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, Jesus became hungry. Seeing from a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple area, and he began to drive out those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court, courtyards. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking to have him put to death. For they were afraid of him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would leave the city. And as they were passing by the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Well, let's consider these 
two seemingly disconnected events as we explore Jesus' desire to bring restoration between God and people. So let's begin with the first location, the temple, the temple. So why does Jesus make this intense, violent protest in the temple? Well, let's consider the setting of this action parable just a little bit by looking at some of the original purposes of the temple. The temple was intended to be a gift from God to his people. If we go all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple was first being dedicated by King Solomon, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, we see King Solomon praying. And in his prayer, we see that King Solomon acknowledges that no temple, no matter how grand, no building, no matter how great, is able to contain the immensity of God. Solomon acknowledges that. And yet, he prays. He asks the living God when people kneel to pray in the temple, or even when they kneel toward the temple and pray, even if they're not at it, Solomon asks that God would pay special attention to those prayers. That is his request before Almighty God. So while God is everywhere, there was a special sense for the Jewish people in which God's presence was located in the temple. And in particular, in the innermost place called the Holy of Holies. But you see, God's gift of the temple was never intended only for the Israelite people. It was for the whole world. Because as Jesus quotes here, the temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus here is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And so when Jesus comes into the temple courts and he sees the money changers and the people selling animals and as he overturns the tables and as he kicks over the chairs and yells at the people buying animals, he is symbolically enacting judgment against the temple. And we know this because as he does this, he cites two prophets, the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, by saying, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's Isaiah. But you have made it a den of thieves, he quotes from, Isaiah, from Jeremiah. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus enacting God's judgment in this way in the temple of Jerusalem? Well, just picture this scene, if you will, for a moment. Jesus walks into the temple courts in Jerusalem. He's going to see literally thousands of people in the court of the Gentiles. This is a model of, of the temple, but I want you to see how large that outer courtyard is. It's a large, vast area. And as Jesus walks in, he's going to see literally thousands of people gathered there in that outermost largest courtyard, the place that was set apart for the Gentiles, the people who are not Jewish, to seek God and pray. But instead of prayer and worship, there are thousands of people there, and among those thousands, there are hundreds of people that are exchanging currencies, money, because people are coming from all over the world for the Passover celebration, and they need temple coin to buy animals to sacrifice. The money from their other countries is not accepted. And then there are also hundreds of merchants selling animals, doves and sheep and goats. 
so that the people can make their sacrifice. And that's not an exaggerated number. According to the historian Josephus, during one Passover week alone, it was recorded that the merchants sold more than a quarter million sheep. Can you believe that? A quarter million sheep, that's a lot of lambs. That's a lot of sheep to count. You could go to sleep pretty easily, couldn't you, counting those sheep? And so this place, the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be the place where people from around the world could gather to pray and to worship and to seek the living God, was so congested that it probably resembled Valley River Center the week before Christmas, kind of combined with a livestock auction. It's not a sanctuary. It's not a place of worship. It's not a place where prayer is encouraged. And so this is the primary reason for Jesus' action-oriented protest. Now, some people might point out that the reason that Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers and those selling animals was because he was against any business happening in the house of God. But I don't think that's really what Jesus is getting at here, and here's why. In order for the people to sacrifice to God in the temple, they needed animals. And people were coming from all over the world. And they weren't able to bring their animals with them. When they brought the animal, it had to be an animal that was without injury, without blemish. And so they needed a place to be able to purchase those animals. And so it was necessary, necessary for there to be money changers. There was necessary for animals to be available to, to, to purchase, at least somewhere near the temple. It was a practical necessity. But I think the primary reason that Jesus is upset at what's going on in the temple is the fact that thousands of people are in the courts exchanging money, selling animals, commotion going on, that it's impossible. Impossible for the Gentiles, or anyone, really, to pray and to worship God. And Jesus says, as he's making this somewhat violent protest, my father's house was meant to be a place of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into this crazy den of thieves. So one reason that Jesus protested what was going on is because of the commotion. So much busyness that it was virtually impossible to worship properly. But then the second reason for his protest, according to the verses that he's quoting, is because the temple has become an exclusionary place. According to the scriptures, the high priest was called by God to enter into the inner sanctum of the temple, the most holy place called the Holy of Holies. He did that only once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So that was something stipulated by God in Scripture. But according to the Talmud, the Talmud is a kind of a commentary, a Jewish commentary on the first five books of the Bible. From that, we learn that the Gentiles had been pushed out to these outermost courts, now, if you were a Jewish man, you could come into the inner court. If you were a priest, you could come even farther for practical reasons to make sacrifices. But if you were a Jewish woman, you were pushed to an outer court further away from the actual holy place. Or if you were a Jewish person with some kind of a disability, say you were blind or you had leprosy or you're unable to walk, you were also relegated to the outer courts further away from the holy place. So in a superficial sense, the temple is inclusive. It includes Gentiles and women and people that are disabled and men. 
But if you look at it more closely, you can see how if you were a woman, if you were disabled, if you were a Gentile, you were basically pushed to the margins. The word robber that Jesus uses when he talks about how the temple has become a, a den of thieves, that really, one of the translations is that it could be bandit, you know, like a member of an outlaw gang. And again, we know from Jewish history in the first century that there were gangs of radical revolutionaries. Today we might call them uh, extreme fundamentalists. And they were literally hiding out in the temple courts, trying to stay away from the Roman soldiers and the police, the occupying force of the land at that time. And these particular groups of revolutionaries had an exclusive, narrow vision for the nation of Israel. And part of that vision included a Messiah who would come and cleanse the temple. Cleanse the temple of Gentiles. And then lead an insurrection and overthrow Rome and restore the Jewish kingdom to its former military and political power and glory. That was their dream. That was their hope. And imagine what they thought when Jesus came into the city and the crowds adored him. Could this be the moment? But then here's the irony. Here's the irony. Jesus, when he comes as the Messiah, he doesn't come and cleanse the Gentile courts of the Gentiles as those fundamentalists were hoping. He cleared the courts for the Gentiles. And then Additionally, when Jesus was in the temple, when he was in the courtyards, he spent time healing those people that couldn't walk. He healed those that were blind. He interacted with those that had been pushed to the margins of the temple. And by doing so, Jesus is symbolically saying that even if you're blind, even if you can't walk, even if you're on the outside looking in, God welcomes you into his presence. And Jesus in his protest perhaps is saying, my house, the house of the living God was meant to be a prayer, a place of prayer for people of all nations, a place where all are welcome before the throne of God. And we know that in his protest, as he knocked over the tables, as he kicked over the chairs, as he chased the animals, we know that this protest wasn't driven. It wasn't driven by the fact that Jesus was having a bad day. It wasn't just because he was stressed out in his ministry. He's there for a purpose and a reason as he quotes and applies relevant scripture to the situation. So that's the temple. Now let's move to a second location. The location is the tree. The tree. There's a second reason we know that Jesus' protest is not a personal vendetta. And that's what happens because of what happens just before and just after he enters the temple and does this cleansing. And so we turn to this peculiar scene of Jesus encountering the fig tree. What's going on here? It's a rather odd event that takes place. Jesus is leaving Bethany. He's about to go back to the temple in Jerusalem. And according to our text, he sees off in the distance a fig tree full of green leaves. And he's hungry. So he goes over to see if there are any figs on the tree. There aren't any. And so Jesus ends up cursing the tree. May you never bear fruit again. It sounds a bit off-putting, doesn't it? 
kind of makes Jesus look like a mean guy. But what Jesus is doing here, again, is very symbolic. First of all, a fig tree in the scriptures is a symbol of the nation of Israel. And in particular, it's a symbol of the nation of Israel's spiritual health and vitality. So when Jesus approaches this particular fig tree looking for figs to eat, and all he finds are leaves, no ripe figs, and we learn from the text that it's not quite the season for figs to be ripe. It's sometime around April, and the figs won't be ripe until late May. Now, I don't know much about fig trees, but it's my understanding that if leaves have come out on a tree, as they have, then there should at least be baby figs on the tree. Once the leaves start coming out, these baby figs come out at the same time. And those tiny little baby figs are edible. They're not as sweet, obviously, as a ripe fig, but they are fruits that you can snack on. And so if the leaves come out, but the baby figs don't, it's a sign that there won't be any harvest that year. Additionally, fig trees have two harvests per year. And if no figs come out it, with the first leaves, it means that there's not going to be any harvest at all that year. And then, in fact, leaves without baby figs is a sign that it's likely the fig tree itself is decaying from the inside out. And so Jesus approaches a fig tree with leaves, but no figs. Something is wrong with that fig tree. And he curses it. May you never bear fruit again. And again, what he's doing is highly symbolic. It's what biblical scholars would call an acted parable. Now, a parable, we know, is a, an earthly or physical story uh, or event that illustrates a heavenly or a spiritual truth. And in the Gospels, there are two types of parables. There are spoken parables. Jesus used many of these as he told stories throughout his time of ministry. For instance, he talked about a farmer who sowed seeds as a way to teach about the various conditions of our heart, some being hard and rocky, others being fertile and receptive. But then Jesus also used what we call acted parables, where he would do something to illustrate a, a truth or a spiritual principle. For instance, he opened the eyes of blind people to enable them to see physically, but also to show that as the Messiah, he had come to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. Once Jesus walked on water. He didn't do that just to show off. He did that to demonstrate that with God, nothing is impossible. No circumstance is too great that God cannot overcome it. And so as he curses the fig tree, this too is an acted parable. A physical act that represents something spiritual, something symbolic. By cursing the fig tree, in essence, he is saying that the nation of Israel, and in particular, their way of life and their system of worship, as it's been expressed through the temple, that the, through that, the people have failed to bear the fruit of God's character. And we know that his encounter with the fig tree reflects on what happens at the temple because his experience in the temple is actually bookended by his experience with this fig tree. Before he goes into the temple, he encounters the tree and curses it. Then he goes to the temple, clear, clears it, cleanses it, comes out, and now 
Peter sees the tree and it is withered. And so his disciples see this interaction with the fig tree connected with the temple visit that they've just witnessed. It is an acted parable. So what is the takeaway in all this? What about us as we read this this event? What's going on for us? From both the scene in the temple and Jesus cursing the fig tree. Well, it's sure not for us to to leave here today and say to go down to to Safeway or over to Fred Meyer and maybe we say that uh, we get there and they don't have our particular type of apple that we really like. And so then we go and we say to the produce clerk, hey, you don't have red delicious apples? May you never sell apples again. Shame on you. That's not the point, is it? The application is not to to curse out the folks who work at Safeway or Fred Meyer. Think of it this way. We are the trees. And Jesus is asking us, where is the fruit in your life, in my life? Where are the temples? And that's not some sort of fanciful interpretation either. You see, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in fact, precisely at the moment he died, the temple curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies was actually torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that now through Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins on the cross, the way has been opened for us, for us to enter into the most holy presence of God and for God's holy presence to enter into us. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, you and I, we have, if we've given our, our lives to God, if we've accepted Jesus as our Savior, do you understand that we are the temple of God rather than dwelling in a building in Jerusalem? God now dwells in the hearts of men and women who call upon Jesus as Savior. We are the temple of God, both both personally and corporately. And Jesus is asking us, where is the fruit in our lives? Have you ever said to God, maybe just in your prayer life, God, I'm having trouble. I'm struggling. Give me a sign. I want a sign, God. Well, think about this. Maybe Jesus is saying back to us, You give me a sign that you really know me. You give me a sign. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, If you abide in me and in my works, my presence, my Holy Spirit abides, lives in you, and you will bear much fruit. And he's talking about the fruit of character. He says, you'll bear much fruit as you become more like me. Earlier in that passage in John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And he's speaking metaphorically here, but he says, then my father, God, is the gardener. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, the gardener cuts off. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So how do we become more fruitful? How do we become people that bear more resemblance to the character of Jesus Christ? 
How do we become more prayerful and more inclusive? Well, part of the way is by allowing the Father to prune us. Even as the pruning took place in the temple of things that were in and of themselves good and necessary, the money changers, the people selling animals for sacrifices. You know, sometimes, sometimes in our own lives, things become so crowded, so busy, so cluttered, that Jesus begins to prune away things. Sometimes even things that are good so that we can have more space for God, so that we can have more capacity to pay attention to Jesus Christ and more ability to respond to his transforming work in us. I've thought about this particular passage and this pruning aspect over the last year or so as we've walked together through this time of pandemic as a nation, as a community, and as a church family. And it has been a time of pruning. And I find myself asking, what's going on here, God? And I keep coming back to that idea that the pruning is healthy. It doesn't always feel healthy, does it? To be cut, to be severed. And yet the pruning may just be for our own good so that we can be transformed even more into the character of our Lord. So I ask you the question, how is the fruit of Jesus' character being seen in the tree of your life? If you're a naturally anxious person, are you becoming more supernaturally peace-filled? Are you seeking that? If you're an angry person by nature, are you becoming less reactive? If you're impatient, are you looking for ways to practice patience with God and with his people? If you're insecure, are you becoming more confident in the truths of the Savior? If you struggle with pride, are you striving to look less at yourself and more toward pursuing humility? If you tend to associate only with people just like you, are you making any efforts to become more inclusive, to build bridges with people that are far away from God? Are you being changed? Is the fruit of Christ's character being born in the tree of your life? Let me return back to the temple one last time as an image. There were two reasons why the temple was ultimately judged as obsolete, no longer needed. One was because, as we already pointed out, it had become dysfunctional. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, but now it was just this mess of things going on. And therefore, it was seen by Jesus as obsolete. But there was a second reason the temple would soon become obsolete. According to the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and doves never actually took people's sins away. That's why, according to Hebrews, the priests had to offer sacrifices year after year after year for the people because none of those sacrifices really atoned for anyone's sin at all. But when Jesus died on the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb, he made payment for our sins once and for all. And because of that, 
the sacrificial aspect of the temple, the part of the temple life that required blood sacrifice for people's sins, it was no longer necessary. The temple was obsolete. And just as Jesus himself predicted some years later in the year 70 AD, that temple was actually destroyed, teared down completely. You know, at the cross, Jesus would shed his blood for the world. And when he died, as we said, that temple was, curtain was torn, showing us now that ordinary people, you and me, sinners like us, could be forgiven, that we could enter into the holy presence of God, and God's holy presence could enter into us. And as that happens, as we're filled, we become more and more like Jesus. People who pray and worship the living God with all of our hearts. And those who extend God's love to people all around us, even to, and maybe especially to, people that are very much different than we are. You know, the cross has two beams. It has a vertical beam that symbolizes how God connects with us. Jesus connects upward to God in prayer and worship. But then there's that horizontal beam. Think of that as a symbol of how Jesus connects us together. Enables us to embrace people that are different from ourselves. And folks, this is the reason that we celebrate this Easter season. Palm Sunday coming up. Good Friday. Resurrection Sunday. These days remind us that only through Jesus Christ can we be made new people. New in relation to God and new in relation to one another. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your perfect plan. Lord, from long ago, you knew this plan and it was carried out in perfection. Father, we thank you that Jesus became a sacrifice for us. Father, we thank you that we can have the peace and the hope that only come because of Jesus. Father, thank you for reminding us of these deep, important truths. Father, help us as we leave this place today to think about how we can represent you Father, how we can bring the cure, the cure for the curse that sits on so many people that don't know you. And Lord, we have the information, we have the truth, we have the hope, and we have the peace. May we share that freely with those who so desperately need it. Bless us this day, Father. Go with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we prepare to have our closing song. And I just feel like I need to say that if, if you don't know Jesus completely, if you've never given your life to Jesus, today would be a great day to start that journey. We invite you to talk with one of us. Grab somebody that you know. Grab somebody you don't know. I'll be by the front door. You can grab me and say, I want to know more about walking with Jesus. We invite you to Come and talk with us today. Let's sing that song, Kathy. Mm-hmm.